Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. Dr. Sarah E. Damoff is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at Central Michigan University, as well as the Research Faculty Affiliate in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education at the University of Michigan's School of Public Health. She is a Principal Investigator for the Family Health Lab at Central Michigan University, where the focus is on childhood obesity prevention and media use. Welcome, Dr. Domoff. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. As you know, we live in a time where we know that social media has greatly impacted youth mental health. I mean, it's one of the most highly discussed and debated topic, right? The screen time use and how that impacts our our teens. And I'm so glad that you're here to share all of the research, your wisdom, your insight. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, I first would love for you to tell us about the Family Health Lab and why your focus is specifically on how media impacts children. Absolutely. So I um, thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited to talk about basically, you know, how both like digital media and social media uh, may impact children and youth and families. And um, broadly speaking, um, you know, children are are really growing up online. And so part of their lives, their culture, their environment is digital, is online. And um, we care about, you know, psychologists and other health professionals, we care about raising healthy children. And we've studied many different contexts in which children grow up, household, family interactions, school interactions. Um, We need to focus on what's going on online and how that's impacting their development. And so the Family Health Lab really tried to marry some of my interests in in both media effects and and health outcomes for children. Um, earlier in, in my my training, I was focused on you know how does watching certain types of of media impact um, individuals, and so that's what we call media effects. But um, but as I was going through my training, social media was really growing. Um, mobile devices were in everyone's hands, and it really you know the shift in my research really went towards this these new forms of, of delivery of media and what that means for child development. And, and as a clinical psychologist, I'm really interested in how we can help families parent around media use. How can we get the, the good things from it and, and mitigate the risks? And I was seeing families expressing a lot of concern about managing the excessive amounts of screen time and feeling a lot of these dilemmas around how do I set limits, but then also I want them to to be tech savvy. You know, how do I um, reduce use, but when I find it so beneficial for managing the household to be able to to have screens available? So um, it's complicated, and so that that really um, that really drove my research and and some of the work coming out of my lab. Yeah, and it's so fascinating. I sometimes will refer to the Pew Research Institute for a lot of their statistics and findings. And I came across one, which, of course, I completely relate to. And it's something that I say all the time 
that parenting is harder than it's ever been. And the parents that were researched, that were surveyed, it was two thirds of the parents that said parenting is harder than it's ever been 20 years ago, even. And they relate that mostly to screen time and technology use with their children. So I found that really fascinating. Yeah. And if you think about it, like, you know, even I think what I, what's I think so challenging is um, what I hear is that, you know, with each subsequent generation of parents, there are new tech related issues that they can't go to their elders or the children's grandparents to address. It's like there are new things popping up constantly. And there isn't that typical blueprint, so to speak, for, you know, how do you handle these issues? Um, But I do believe um, that there's a lot of lessons and and messages and and knowledge gained from just developmental science that does apply to parenting children in this digital age. It's just, I think for, for some, for, for many families, it's like, well, we've never dealt with this issue before. There isn't exact guidance on this. So who do I go to? How can I, who can I t- turn to for help? And so that's why a, a big part of my, my lab and my out and, and the work I do is outreach. So like, how do we get this information to um, our findings, our results to, um, to parents, to clinicians, to other caregivers, to teachers, because um, we're, we're trying to keep, keep up with the technological changes. We can't go as fast as technology in terms of doing this research. However, um, when we do find um, and discover best practices or things that may work, it's important for us to share it using using the medium that we that we study technology. And so, as much as I look at the the negatives, um, I do recognize that technology and social media can can be positive, can be a force for change, and is going to be important for us to use to disseminate information on how to live in this healthfully in this digital age. Yeah, and you brought up a great point, right? It's that pace of science advancement versus technological advancement. Mm-hmm. But so there's a lot of great research. And I feel like when 2020 happened, that really spotlighted the impact of there's coping mechanisms, right? And how mm-hmm. a lot of people had to turn to technology for various reasons. We know kids were home. My kids were learning from home, parents working from home. So there was just this explosion of screen time. Mm-hmm. And now it's like studying the ramifications of that and the continued use and almost having to retract, you know, the dependence on screen time so much, but that's so hard to do, right? Because a lot exactly. of young kids were born during the pandemic. A lot of really young kids, like my son was very, very young during the pandemic. So automatically, you know, we had to start using screens at home and the kids were learning and parents were working from home. So that just that exposure happened, mm-hmm. even if families didn't want that to happen. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd love if you could talk about one of your talks, you were discussing a really fascinating tool. It was called Lena language environment and analysis technology. If you can explain that for us, and then I'd love to talk about just stages of development and how media use can impact that. Absolutely. So what, um, with our discussion on how uh, technology is moving really quickly, um, and, you know, sometimes our measures, like our surveys that we give out, um, don't capture what's happening right now because technology changes so quickly. And so what um, my research has really been rooted in is really hearing about the experiences of people right now. So capturing live naturalistic 
um, you know, in the moment experiences from parents and children. And there are a variety of ways to do this, but, you know, observational research is really important in this area. So one study we, had, we did a few years ago used the Lena device and it recorded um, parent-child interactions, basically anything um, audible in a child's environment. We transcribed those interactions around media use, um, and we looked at basically what are the situations that unfold when parents are navigating screen time or children are watching uh, different types of digital media. Um, and so that really gave us some insight into well, what's happening now. And though this was before the pandemic, but we've seen a lot of the kind of early evidence of this pop up in later research um, with larger samples. But we, we found that, you know, parents um, in, in, our, in this study, um, when talking with, with children and these children of different ages, there was, um, you know, not really so much a back and forth and discussion about media use, except when it was around setting limits. And so you heard a lot of discussion, debate, asking for longer time on different screens um, in these families. Um, and it wasn't so much so that we heard parents scaffolding or talking about um, what the child was watching unless um, the child initiated it. And so when we think about parenting around media, we really want to hear, um, we, we, we know for benefits um, that parents who talk to their children about what they're viewing, labeling what's happening on the screen, um, helping them follow the narrative, um, discussing um, different characteristics of the people on the screens that they want their children to emulate. So pointing out values or pro-social behavior, those types of parenting interactions around media can have really positive impacts on children, such that children who watch certain types of pro-social content, they have better social emotional outcomes when their parents or another adult is there talking to them about what they're seeing. Um, and so one of the concerning things that we saw in, in, in these recordings is that that didn't happen as much and it wasn't as parent um, as much parent initiated. There were some more um, verbal children who requested assistance in navigating what they were seeing on screens. And then we did hear parents talk to them, but it doesn't um, it wasn't happening as commonly as communication was happening about setting restriction or limits. And so we do care in addition to that processing of the content, we do want parents to set limits and have restrictions um, on too much time, time around bedtime, certain types of content. When we heard discussion between parents, it was often around negotiating limits. So a child wanting to watch more, more time, you know, more time on the tablet, more time watching TV, um, more time gaming. And so um, it was, you know, again, like navigating um, demands for more screen time, debating, you know, extending the limits, you know, that really popped up as um, the types of communication that happened when screens were on in, in, these fam in, in this data set. So um, it kind of, it really reinforced some of the things that I'm hearing clinically, you know, as a clinical psychologist, hearing from parents that, they don't know how to um, set limits around screen time because there can be a meltdown or it just winds up um, taking them further away from things that they need to do. Um, so some of the, the research that I've been doing, you know, connected to that study that you, you referenced is trying to coach parents around, you know, being present while their child's consuming media when they can, but then also moving the child away from 
the screen to a non-screen-based play or another type of activity. Um, and we're really finding that it's the coaching, so giving parents the words, the skills to navigate parents around screen time that works. That it's not just enough to say, hey, you should set limits, or hey, you know what, you should probably be present while your child's um, watching TV. I, parents know that, they know about the risks and the benefits to a large extent, the challenges in the implementation. And so I'm really interested in that. So how do we help parents gain skills in this area? Because um, we know that helping children have self-regulation around media use is so important, especially because it's all around us. And, you know, with this being a nutrition podcast, I, I love the analogy of like, screens can kind of just be like, the, you know, those foods that we have sometimes or desserts, you know, it's, it's it could always be there. It's present in our environment, but we have to learn how to have a little bit here and there versus be very restrictive or overindulgent. So it's, it's definitely a balance and, and parents um, are at different stages in terms of how they, how they navigate that. And, and part of what I care about is helping parents get to a point where they feel like, yep, I got this down. I'm able to manage media use in, the, in my home, according to my values, according to my, um, my, my beliefs about the benefits and risks. Um, and so, yeah, so that's where we're at right now. Yeah. And it all comes down to that power struggle, right? So we know with yeah. kids, it's that sense of control. So, which is also the most stressful part of any parent-child interaction is children are so strong-willed, right? And mm -hmm. as hard as it is to me as a parent, any child can bring you to your knees if they want to. Mm -hmm. So it's, sort of removing that power struggle. But we also know with media use, it's also that dopamine effect. So if you were to abruptly remove something from a child, right, something's happening in that brain and that's what's causing the meltdown. So I love that you talk about this conversation, this interaction, really about the transition that needs to happen going from one thing to another. Right. It's kind of like imagine you provided, when you give a child a tablet and they're online and they're playing games and then you pull them right away, that would be like giving a child access to really delicious foods and then saying, oh, we're taking it right away before you're finished uh, while you can still see it. And so it's it's very, um, we have to be mindful of what they're, they're um, doing on the screens and then also trying to transition them away to an equally, potentially equally enjoyable activity. And what, what we found is that kids really love to play with their parents. Um, and when we teach parents you know, child-focused, child-centered um, play, um, it's not as overwhelming to move them to a play activity because kids love being with their parents. They love playing. Um, sometimes we forget that because we hear so much about the screens and wanting to be on screens. But we found, um, we found that, you know, in moving to play versus something that's more like a consequence or punitive, like having to do chores after gaming or playing um, mm -hmm. on their tablet um, is, is going to be a more a bigger struggle than moving to something that's enjoyable and then transitioning them to um, something that they need to do, like getting ready for bed. Yeah. And parents, caregivers have more influence over a child when they're younger, of course. Mm -hmm. And then parents feel like as teenagers, like you said, they don't want to hang out with us. They don't want to be near us, but they actually still crave that interaction and that yes. connection with us. It just might be in a different way. But so how do we, if we're talking about media use and how that affects from young children through the life stages up until teenagehood, early adulthood, what does that look like? Yeah, so um, I like to explain this um, in like in, there's like three different buckets of influence, really across the ages. 
Um, and the way that it impacts younger children versus older children just kind of depends on what they're exposed to. So first, we know that content matters. What you see, you know, there are media effects. What you see influences how you think. Um, it influences your well-being. So if you, like, even as adults, if we watch news all the time covering um, really upsetting, stressful content, we're going to feel more stressed, right? So with younger children, and it's sa and the same is true for positive content. If we see positive, uplifting content, that will have a positive outcome. So with younger children all the way up to older adolescents, we want to make sure that the content that they're consuming, what they're viewing is age appropriate, you know, developmentally appropriate. So younger children are not watching um, violent or, um, or sexual content um, that it's pro-social. So with the younger children, we really especially want them to see content that has been designed for them by child developmental developmentalists, people who understand um, how to promote healthy, adaptive uh, skills in children. So types of content such as like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Sesame yes. Street. I was just thinking that yeah. I love anything mm -hmm. related to Fred Rogers Institute. Yes. Exactly. So in those younger years, if you can choose content that is positive, pro-social, edu educational, um, that's that's the way to go. You know, I know that for some families, screen eliminating screen time is, is not possible with younger children. So if you if you have to um, have your child watch screens, they can actually benefit from certain types of content. Um, and as children get older, the same thing is true for, for social media, um, for different apps, for gaming. You know, we really encourage healthy content. So not encountering content that is not appropriate for a child at, at any given age. And with older children, you know, a lot of the concern that we've been seeing is related to exposure to, for example, online pornography or sexual yeah. content or content that is harmful to one's identity or their development. So content that is is racist or homophobic, like that can come up a lot in these chat rooms or while kids are gaming. And so really knowing what they're exposed to is critical. And if the content is not appropriate or it's harmful to their well-being, we want them to redirect and not go to that. And it gets even more complicated when we start talking about social media and algorithms like with different video streaming um, channels you can be steered to the more salacious or concerning content just based on um, like the algorithms used. And so also it's helping teens, those who are being more independent in their use, realize that, you know, when you search for something, you may not, not get the whole range of options online. You're getting a curated selection. And a lot of times those videos or those posts or those people to follow may not have content that's good for your well-being. And we see that with, you know, content related to um, self-harm or disordered eating, especially on social media. So, you know, the, the take-home message for content is it, is it matters and parents and youth should be aware of what they're seeing and notice how the content may impact them um, and really choose content. Um, whether you're the parent choosing the content for the child or you're the teen themselves choosing the content that that works for you, that doesn't make you feel worse about yourself, that promotes well-being or facilitates connection with others. Um, so that's one piece. The other big piece is like the timing of use and what screens may displace. So what I mean by that is 
um, because we're on screen so much, it's, it's kind of hard to, to give a hard and fast rule about um, the number of hours, um, you know, for which there, there are problems because the content matters for one thing, as we just discussed, but then it also matters during, you know, what time during the day are we using screens? And when we look at the research on how social media or digital media use impacts a older children and adolescents, that nighttime use, the use that interferes with sleep, um, sleep being disrupted by screens, that's really critical. Um, and so, you know, when someone says, you know, my child is on social media for several hours a day, I want to know, well, when are they? And, and what are they seeing and when are they on the screens? Because um, if we, we want to know how and if screen use is interfering with those key parts of a child's day. Sleep, super important. During mealtime, also important to not have screens. And that goes for the parents too, because you want to have them benefit from that, that mealtime, that, that shared time with families where you can connect over food. Um, and then also like at school, you know, for some of my research has found that, you know, there's poor academic outcomes when we're checking social media in the classroom, right? Or when we are um, looking at social media while we're doing our homework. So really considering what's called the context of use and trying to choose times that, you know, have, it's more of like a harm reduction approach. Choose times during the day um, for which um, using screens wouldn't take away from what we would expect that time to be used for. Um, so, so that's the other, you know, bucket that I, that I think is important to consider. And then the third one that I'll just quickly point out is individual differences and that there are some youth, some children who may have some underlying vulnerabilities to, you know, dysregulated media use using screens too much, or there may be some mental health concerns that intersect with media use such that, um, anxiety may worsen. Um, if they're looking at content, if they already have an underlying anxiety disorder, or maybe, you know, a child's feeling isolated or, or depressed, um, there are certain types of media use that can make that worse. Whereas there could be other types, like connecting with loved ones or friends or finding a community um, that's positive or supportive um, that could help mitigate some of those concerns. And so, again, I think some of the recommendations for families and parents and teens themselves also depends on individual risk factors and individual um, characteristics and really making sure that what they choose in terms of content and the context of use matches um, that, that individual. Like how can we make sure that, that what you're seeing um, and, and when you're using screens um, make, is at least neutral, but doesn't make things worse. And if it can make, coping better, awesome. Um, but there, that's a, that's tough. I mean, it, it's going to, it requires a lot of oversight and planning um, with parents and teens around that. Yeah. And I think this is where it gets tricky because there are a lot of guidelines that point to say delaying getting a smartphone until at least eighth grade. There's an online campaign that goes around and parents can sign it. And they're even recommending just get a simple flip phone, no apps. And social media ideally delayed until 16 or 17 years of age, but statistics are showing otherwise, right? So going back to the Pew Research Center saying about a fifth of parents reported that their child under the age of 12 has a smartphone. Mm 
So you mentioned great points like vulnerability, susceptibility, but how do we, knowing that younger and younger kids have access to all of these apps and online and exposure to, say, cyberbullying, inappropriate content, how do we address that with the, with the younger kids, knowing that they are online? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, what I, I like to, you know, what I recommend um, when, when working with families around this issue is to look at what, what's possible. You know, what are some, some options within your family and your, your daily schedule that are feasible? Because there are so many different ways that parents and families can, um, so many choices they can make about, about screen time, about what children see, about products to use to kind of block certain types of content, um, rules in the household, and so forth. So, so I think it's important just to first mention that we have to consider a family's individual circumstances as well as the child's. Um, and again, we'll have better outcomes if family members are, are ready to change certain types of practices. Um, and so one rule for everyone is likely going to fail. And so what I think is, is most important is, um, especially when it comes to social media and being on smartphones, is to, is to make sure that families are aware that um, children can have access to content, even um, without purposely looking for it, that can be um, maladapted for them harmful for them. Yes. So I think being able to first um, feel like you have the the skills to communicate with your, your child about this. Um, so labeling for them, you know, with this smartphone, you have access to the world. You know, it's like putting your child in, in a, a town and saying, good luck navigating this. We're going to give them maps. We're going to tell them, how do you determine if somebody's safe to talk to? Uh, how can you find content that's enjoyable and age appropriate? So like you want to think about it that way, that they have access to the world um, with this phone. So knowing that, think about your own individual child. There's some children that are very... Um, you know, aware of concerns about social media use. And so they, they say, I would not talk to a person like that. I know how to block someone. Other children may be like, oh, I, you know, are more open to interacting with people they don't know. So again, keeping in mind your own child, having those conversations about privacy and security and not posting information that could potentially um, be harmful to you. So if you have a child who may be a little more impulsive and, and post things without thinking or follows people or interacts with people they shouldn't, um, you may want to question whether that smartphone is the best option and maybe do a flip phone instead um, or do online interactions or online use with a parent present until they can show that they have the skills to navigate online interactions or requests and add those privacy settings, make sure that those are, are up to date and you, you can help your child learn how to set those um, and so forth. But also, um, we want to have com communication about how they feel and what they're seeing online. So just as we would ask a child, you know, how was your day at school? Um, who did you sit with at lunch? And so forth. Ask them. Show me some of the, the funny posts you saw today on um, Instagram. Or talk to me about a TikTok video that you thought was really great. And you can kind of get a sense of the types of content that they're exposed to. And that's a sometimes a good way to gauge the the um the the level 
um, you know, the concerning, if there's concerning content, you know, steps that you may want to take. Um, so that's, that's, that's another recommendation. Um, honestly, I think, you know, I, if, if children are getting adequate sleep, you know, they're, they're doing their homework, they're going to school, they're engaged, they interact with others face to face, they're engaged in different activities. You know, if, if a lot of those key aspects that we want a child to, to engage in, in their childhood, um, are met, like they're doing the things that we know are good for their development. A little bit of screen time isn't, isn't bad, right? A lot of times though, when we, we hear about problems with social media or going online too much, um, there's something else that's missing. And so instead of directing uh, parents to have only a certain number of hours of screens per day, I want them to think about, okay, in what ways, you know, is, is your child, you know, doing well, you know, they're, they're doing their school, they're doing extracurriculars or doing, you know, every, you know, things that they are hoping that their, their child um, is engaged in getting physical activity, eating right, getting sleep. Um, in what ways do you see that there could be some concerns? Um, and that is really where I would pivot towards maybe setting more limits or being more restrictive. So if we're hearing, you know, my child feels really alone, they're not really connecting with others. Um, what can we do to help them address that? And if they're going to be on screens, how can we make sure that they're engaging with content that maybe is, is, is beneficial for them in that regard? Maybe it's finding a community of people who enjoy a similar activity. Um, that would be, that could be a positive way to address it. So again, kind of like taken together, those recommendations that, that parents can get around this really depends on the family, the individual child, and knowing how they, if they already have a smartphone, how they deal with the privacy and security concerns, you feel like they're engaging in content that's appropriate or not. And if it seems like there's a risk for them to not be safe online, um, there's underlying vulnerabilities, really, you know, be more, um, you know, proactive in setting limits and and making sure you see what they're consuming. Again, this is for, you know, older children, maybe preteens, but then definitely um, if they are showing that they, they are using skills to navigate challenges online, it's not getting in the way of their functioning, like it, it may not be a problem. So it's, it's tough because there's no one right way to do it. And part of the challenge is working around where your child's at and, and what you can do to shape um, healthy media use. Yeah. And you made great points about kids are smart. So if we go about it from the angle of it's my job to keep you safe, I think safety is obviously a non-negotiable and should be for every household. So starting with that standpoint of I want to keep you safe, there's a lot going on in the world and there's things that we can do to keep you safe, but we also don't know about the 8 billion other people that live in the world. I sort of talk to my kids about it like that. Um, and there's so much exactly. that I don't know. So it's if we put ourselves out there, of course, then it opens ourselves up to more, you know, unsafe practices. So that, and then also I think it's important to talk about this whole culture of comparison mindset and talking yes. to our kids about how online is not actually reality and can create, I mean, it's hard to understand that when you're young, mm -hmm. but I think the more exposure to online just creates this unrealistic false sense of how the world works. And I exactly. think that's when things get into a dangerous territory. 
And that's why it's so important to like know who your child's following, what they're doing. So if you see that your your child is sharing funny videos with their best friend, um, and you know the person, you know their family, and and it's just kids, you know, being kids, and it's not inappropriate, or they're not interacting with people they don't know or strangers. That's one thing. But um, again, if they are following people and you see that they're kind of perseverating on content or they want to be an influencer or they are, are you're seeing that they are, um, you know, really just passively looking at images and it's not really seeming to benefit them in any way and could be harmful. Like, yeah, definitely having those conversations. And I think I think what's what's also challenging as we talk about all of this is that so much of this is put on, on parents and that isn't fair. Um, because a lot of this, um, and a lot of the changes that could be made, um, come from the the industry itself. Um, what can they do to better create environments, um, for children online? Just as if we, you know, brought children to a playground and there were, there was um, a broken slide or there was, you could get splinters. We would hold um, the community accountable to make changes, make it safe for our child. We should take that same perspective for online environments. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we knew that there were places our, our, our child could go online where they could be with people they know where there's actually like adults or monitors or community um, stakeholders there trying to promote um, healthy interactions um, w- without the concern that this content is going to be harmful or that there are people there that shouldn't be there. I think there are ways that we can, that, that tech can do that. I think, um, and I think a lot of parents would love it. And I, 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 but again, you know, we're parents are, are so stressed right now. There's a lot going on. There's so many competing demands, like do your best and try to navigate this and also demand that action is taken so that this is a little bit, it doesn't have to be this hard is basically what I'm trying to say. And I think um, advocating for change, um, holding um, tech accountable for um, certain actions or policies that could be potentially harmful to, to developing minds is, is also important. And so um, I just wanted to throw that out there too. So important. And what about, do you have parental controls or software to monitor media use that you recommend for families that are easier to use, more user-friendly, effective? Yeah. So so especially for like, you know, younger children. So, you know, zero to maybe eight or nine. um, I don't see um, that really, I, I don't see any potential harm yet. And I'll tell you why I'm I'm mentioning this in a second in having, um, you know, you know, child, um, child focus or child locks on different types of search engines, you know, safe search only that sort of thing. So you can do um, security um, practices within different types of apps or um, programs you have um, on your on your um, computers and laptops and so forth. Um, There are you know, um, there is software or apps that, that could let you know if a child comes across content that involves violence or um, there's sexual content and so forth. Um, I know that some families have used Bark. Um, that's one app I've heard used. Um, I know some schools use Go Guardian. Um, so there's different options out there. Um, but what gets tricky 
is when you have a pre-adolescent or, or an adolescent and, and you use these. Um, because for some youth, um, it's, it's, it's completely acceptable to explore and try to understand their identity. And so at a certain point, um, you want to be able to foster um, independence and um, you know a child exploring who they are without the fear that everything they do is going to be scrutinized and viewed by a parent. Got so it. again, some of those products um, I find are more useful for, for children, you know, young children, zero to eight, zero to nine, as well as for youth who may already be getting into some trouble online or who are not using um, the internet safely. Um, and that could be older children too. Yeah. So it sounds like none of those can replace knowing your child well, Mm -hmm. understanding their patterns, right? We know if a child's mood or behavior starts to change, that could be the number one sign that there's something else going on. Exactly. And then as well as just having that meaningful connection with your child and having regular co constant conversations about their feelings, what they're being exposed to, if they have any questions. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, again, I think this is a, a shared responsibility too. So not, not just parents or caregivers, like um, I train teachers on how to have these conversations, counselors, clinicians, coaches, um, any adult, an important adult in a child's life, um, you know, if they don't really know how to have these conversations or, or they want to uh, be there for them um, and help them navigate these online interactions and, and really, you know, be a mentor, um, there, you know, that's definitely something that I would recommend because, you, there are so many important people in a, in a child's life that if we had all of them, you know, routinely yes. asking about these things, being a sounding board, um, that could, that could go very far. And, and part of that is also like making sure that, um, pediatricians and psychologists and other clinicians, um, are routinely having these conversations for youth who are already having some mental health care, uh, having some mental health issues. Um, so again, I think, spreading knowledge, awareness, and giving people the tools to have these con these conversations um, will be great. Yeah. And if we're focusing on adolescents and teens, what are some general do's and don'ts when it comes to approaching that conversation? Yeah. So I think um, being open um, and being interested in hearing what they enjoy versus um, going into it with um, like a, a kind of punitive approach um, is really important. What I like to do sometimes is like um, have families think about doing like a social media agreement or self or smartphone contract um, where before you get the phone and before you get access, if you can, even after is fine too. We talk about some ground rules like, hey, I want to, I know that this can be a great tool for you to connect with your friends. I know that also that there are risks. Let's talk about what what we should be on the look for out on the lookout for. So how would you know, you know, if you're speaking to your teen, um, if you're using it too much or it's not working out for you, or what are you going to do um, when somebody expresses harmful content to you or pressures you, pressures you to send something like, do, would you feel comfortable like saying, Hey, this is happening. Um, one of the biggest concerns that teens have is like, if I tell someone this is happening, I'm going to lose my phone access. I'm not going to be on social media. So you can say, you know, we're going to help you get rid of the people who may be harmful online in terms of blocking them and so forth. But I understand that this is your way to connect with your friends. And so know that when you tell me that something happens or you come across content that's scary or um, confusing or you, you feel scared, 
you you are not going to be punished. Like this is how you learn how to use this tool. And I think being able to alleviate some of those concerns in advance is important. But then also, um, you know, again, I, I do think that alerting parents to different resources online um, and, and being able to talk about these issues is also important. And, and one thing that I've been encouraged um, to see is that um, the, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has this um, this new program. I think it's called Take It Down. And so that's where you can submit, like, if there's an image of you that was shared when you were a child or you're still a child, um, they can help um, you navigate getting content off that you don't want shared, as well as um, different resources on what to do if you're being um, cyberbullied. And so also it's, you know, making sure that parents are aware of these resources and sharing them with children, like with their teens saying, hey, this this happens. Um, This is what you can do to hopefully, you know, prevent um, you know, interactions with people that may not be good for you, but understanding that sometimes mistakes happen. And if they do, like, this is how we're going to proceed and know that I will support you and we will get through this. And so just kind of, I guess, being really proactive and just kind of assume that there's going to be an online stressor and this is how we're going to deal with it as a family. And I'm going to support you. We're going to get through this and we will handle it. And, um, I, I really do think that like, that can go a long way. I love that. And I would love to include the link to the image website as well as the, if there's a contract that you like, that there's yes. a template for that parents can easily access caregivers. It doesn't just have to be parents, but yeah, caregivers, exactly. teachers, anyone working with children. I would love to include those in the show notes as well. Dr. Dunhoff, are there exciting new research that are coming out that you can share with us that you think will have a profound impact on public health messaging? As you said, it's a teamwork. Everyone's responsible for keeping children safe. What can you share there? Well, I'm really excited because we um, have had a a great um, opportunity to partner with um, some healthcare systems around how do we more routinely ask teens about what they experience online and how do we figure out how to steer youth to positive outcomes, positive trajectories of social media use versus those more harmful ones. And so we were funded by um, a grant through the University of Michigan, MISHAR. um, And part of that involved interviewing clinicians as well as asking um, youth who who are receiving mental health care what are some of the the barriers to talking about some of these stressful occurrences that happen online? Um, what would you would you find helpful when you've told a doctor or a parent about um, these stressful experiences online, whether it's cyberbullying or um, people pressuring you to send content, so that we can inform um, what clinicians can do? So how to ask the questions, what teens themselves want doctors to know, or what they want. Um, doctors to ask when they're getting health care um, so that we can more routinely um, identify youth who may be experiencing some harm online and get them into treatment um, um, or address those concerns earlier on. So I'm really excited about that. Wow, that's incredible. And I can't wait to find out all about it. Dr. Dalmoff, where can our listeners find out more about you and, and your research and other projects that you're involved with? Absolutely. So um, my website is www.saradomoff.com. So just my name, if you want to share that. I'm also on Twitter and um, active here and there, but sometimes sometimes not as active depending on on the busyness of work. Um, 
but those are two great ways. Or you can email me if you um, would like uh, um, access to any of my articles um, and so forth. Thank you so much, Dr. Damoff, for being here to discuss your expert findings on a topic that I know not only greatly affects our adolescents and teens, but our families and communities. So thank, thank you so you. much. And thank really you for the first me. oh, it's my pleasure. And we know the first and most impactful step in intervention is awareness. So the work that you do is so profound. And I can't wait to continue and keep following you and sharing the findings of your research. So thank, thank you, you so much again. And to the listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Forush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode, and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.